My name is Emma, if you don't already know me, and this is Stephanie Lang here. Uh, and we're, we are the facilitators of, of Lit Lit Lit, of which you are attending tonight. And tonight is the uh, fifth iteration of Lit 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 with some smaller ones in between. Um, but this one is pretty important, actually. It's the, the oh, it's so going up. Um, it's, it almost marks our first year anniversary uh, of facilitating these events. And these events, for those who don't know, they're bi-monthly reading series, and we invite four writers to, to come up and read. And there are a variety of different, different interests from poets, from writers, from artists who also have a reading practice, and we give around 30 minutes each, a generous amount of time, give or take, <laughs> to, to uh, read, give, give people the opportunity to read, and also, by doing so, explore the performative sides of, of reading and writing. So tonight, we've got a four, four, gosh, artists and writers. <laughs> we have four people who have diversified their labor. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, so this is this is our order for the night. It's actually the same as the program. Oh, it's kind of funny though. Yeah. Okay, so first we'll have Matea. Hi, Matea. Hey. And she'll be reading from her chapbook, The Case of Arturo, which is for sale tonight at the bar. Aiden Whiteley. 
This was not a typical wedding. I need to give you our profile in order to explain this. Aiden is a gay male, and my track record suggests I'm a straight female. We are both cisgendered, and we share the same citizenship. We don't have much to offer the other in ways of finances or political stature. I proposed this project to him as a way of critiquing and parodying the institution of marriage through enacting its legalities and traditions in an absurd way. For Aiden, he has never desired or intended to marry any male partners, and we both understand same-sex marriage to be, in many ways, a continuation and expansion of a sometimes oppressive heteronormative institution. It's not that we hate marriage, but it's worth questioning. And apparently being wed to a straight woman, strictly for artistic purposes, was ridiculous. taxes, and finally went into H&R Block to sort out the mess I had made of them. The lady behind the counter asked if I could please provide Aiden's income, social insurance number, and birth date, as it was my first year as a separated woman. I didn't actually know or remember all or any of these details. She laughed awkwardly, and I reassured her that we were still friends and I could contact him, although he was in Mexico at the time, and I wasn't sure if he would reply. At the opening night of a short film screening during the Vancouver International Film Festival, Aiden was approached in the lobby by strangers with an assortment of questions for him. He made sure to introduce me to one guy around our age, saying, this is my wife, Catherine. The guy appeared to be suppressing his shock in order to continue his conversation in a casual manner. He definitely glanced over with a suspicious eye a few times. Aiden invited me to be his date at a friend's wedding. There was an open bar with champagne that I made good use of, grabbing two flutes at a time and making sure to tell the bartender that I wouldn't want to forget my husband. I walked away feeling like I had really fooled him, but actually I was just telling the truth. I'm not going to read all of them, I'm going to leave some of them for you to figure out. Fine later. Um, in my queer theory class in 2015, I chose to do a reading presentation on the text Marriage Will Never Set Us Free by Dean Spade and Craig Wills, thinking that this would be a perfect opportunity to discuss my marriage with the class in an open setting. During the discussion, another student told a story about a lesbian and gay male couple that decided to get married as a way to display how ridiculous same-sex marriage laws were in the United States. The class laughed and continued discussion, and though I don't consider myself a very shy person in general, I was in this moment avoiding any interjection regarding my own marriage experiment at this opportune moment. I was crossing the border into Seattle to catch a flight to New York in June 2014. I'd only bought a one-way ticket because I wasn't sure when I wanted to come back. The border guard didn't really like this story and started going through my bag, where he found a notebook that I had haphazardly stuck my marriage license in and forgotten about it. He began asking me about my husband, why he wasn't with me, and if he could call him to check that I was in fact returning to Canada. Unfortunately, I had dropped my phone in a toilet two days before, got a new one, and didn't have his number in it. The border guard was fairly suspicious that I didn't know his number off by heart. He tried calling my roommate, but it was 5.30 a.m. and she didn't pick up. Thankfully, he let it go, and I returned to the Bolt bus after 45 minutes, embarrassed, nervous, and sweaty. My dad told me about a conversation he was having with a previous business partner, who didn't understand how a marriage between a straight woman and a gay man could be considered an artwork. At this point, I wasn't sure if my dad was buying it either. They deliberated, and my dad said that that was when he came to the realization that, quote, if art is supposed to make you think about the world and how we exist in it, then I think this project has been very successful. 
felt good to have my dad's approval on the project. Sometimes people tell me, well, you're technically married, but you're not actually married. The statement points to an obvious question. What do people feel constitutes a marriage? Not an infrequent occurrence. Friends talking about other friends who have, been, who have married very young. We all sit around saying how we couldn't imagine being married at this age until someone points out that I am married. I forget. I was in Nelson, BC with my boyfriend last summer to visit his family. At one point, five of us and a dog were driving onto the lake, and the subject of Graham's parents' marriage came up, which is a very cute story of eloping on a frozen lake wearing red 70s corduroy <coughs> in a white landscape. The conversation turned towards friends of Graham's from Nelson, who's married and who's getting married. The marriage conversation just would not stop, and I was very nervous that I would have to talk about my own marriage to these new people in my life while in a small enclosed space. I was grateful that Graham spared me and didn't bring it up. Sometimes I get to snuggle in bed with Aiden and browse grinder with him. <laughs> After the marriage, I was over for dinner at my in-laws' house. This is not a very unusual occurrence, as their place is a bit of a pit stop for friends traveling through. Aiden's dad asked me, so when are you getting a divorce? <laughs> I had a paranoid impression that he was concerned I was going to try and take Aiden's money. Aiden rolled his eyes and said, maybe we'll never get a divorce, Dad. <laughs> I removed the marriage experiment from, as it was formerly called, uh, from my CV a little while ago because I'm often concerned that the project either won't be taken seriously or else too seriously. Looking back on the aftermath of our marriage, Aiden and I both agree that our friendship felt uncomfortable and slightly awkward for about six months. We've concluded that we both felt paranoid that the other person might start having romantic feelings for the other as a result of the commitment we had made. It was pouring rain during our wedding ceremony, and about 15 people showed up. Even though we had made it very clear to each other and everyone invited, that this was not romantic in any way, that we would never consummate the marriage, that we would be getting a divorce, and that the marriage was a satirical, parodic, and critical gesture. Aiden and I both felt extremely nervous and maybe even uncomfortable when we said our vows. A few in attendance shed tears. The experience made me realize the psychological power possessed by the institution of marriage in a seriously personal way. <clears throat> After our marriage, Aiden and I posted a video on YouTube of us saying our vows. My mom watched it and cried. <laughs> Again, I was bewildered that our parody could not stand up against sentimentality and tradition. When I started compiling this book, I realized very quickly that this process is a much-needed act of self-therapy, trying to cope with the fact that, yes, I got married as an art project. One time I was at home, making dinner and cleaning my room, and got a phone call from Aiden around 5 p.m. He said he was just leaving a wedding and asked if he could come over. When he got to my place, he was very drunk and said that he had peed in a bush at Queen Elizabeth Park after the wedding ceremony. Apparently, a little girl saw this happen and ran to tell her parents. <laughs> the wedding was quite nice and quite expensive, and he was reprimanded for urinating outside at such an event. In response, Aiden attempted to brazenly discuss anarchy and communism with a, people, a group of people who really did not want to hear it. He was told that he was not invited to the reception and left immediately. While at my place, his friend, whose date he had been, phoned him, and I could hear, overhear Aaron, 
Aiden in the next room yelling, no one wanted me at that wedding. I'm at my wife's place now where the love flows freely. <laughs> I gave him a large glass of water and some dinner. Him and his friend managed to sort it out. <coughs> Sometimes I ask myself if this project is the most successful project I've ever done, simply because it has actually made even me feel uncomfortable at times. It's a cool bonus that if anything terrible were to happen to either me or Aiden, we would get visitation rights in a hospital or prison. Of course, I hope we never have to use that. I went to a quasi-rave on Newcastle Island this past summer with Aiden and some friends. Aiden had gold stilettos on, was on ketamine, and was dancing like Beyonce. I felt very basic compared to my husband. In some ways, I want to get a divorce, just so that I can call myself a divorcee. <laughs> I spontaneously went to New York for a couple weeks one time and did not budget my money properly. I was running out and had to borrow $350 from Aiden to eat and get back to Canada. When I arrived in Vancouver, I didn't have anywhere to live, so I stayed at his place. Out of appreciation, I spent a few days cleaning his house and cooking him food while he went to work. It was shocking how easily we both stepped into these traditional, normative gender roles of husband and wife. <clears throat> I was living in Kelowna for a summer, where my family and many of my old friends were. At a house party, I went to hang out in the front yard where people were drinking and smoking. I had just smoked quite a bit of weed and was having a hard time socializing because of this, when someone asked me a pointed question. What's the purpose of your marriage? How is it an art project? I suddenly found myself being stared at by a round table of about 10 people while I struggled to speak at all, let alone divulge the conceptual justification for my project. I'm still not sure if my sentences were strung together properly on a basic grammatical level. I walked away feeling like a freak and like failure as an artist. I was standing at Ferrari in Third Ave, waiting at the bus stop in front of Ferrari Maserati Vancouver dealership talking to Aiden on my phone. We were working out the ideas for this project based on a critique of marriage, and I suppose this was when we proposed to each other. I was too broke to pay the $210 for the marriage license and commissioner, so Aiden paid for the whole ordeal. I was aware of my complicity in allowing a white male to pay my way, and wondered how or if this related to the project overall. I agreed to pay for the divorce in return, but haven't felt the need to dish out a few hundred dollars recently. For a long time, I kept the bouquet of flowers that was given to me at my wedding by my new sister-in-law. One night on his way home, Aiden was arrested by police for not wearing a helmet while riding his bike. They were unnecessarily rough with him from the beginning, and Aiden got confrontational with them. He dared the police to pepper spray him. They did. <laughs> he was beaten with batons, placed in handcuffs, and taken to a holding cell overnight. He got out at 5 a.m. and didn't let it change his day. He went to Bellingham to see internet poet Steve Rogenbuck do a performance. When I heard the story from friends that evening at a birthday party, I was upset and tried to call him numerous times. I was worried and angry about, towards the police, but selfishly, I was also a little bit hurt that he hadn't called me that morning to tell me, being his wife and all. Mm -hmm. 
At times I wonder if this was subconsciously all just a plot to lay claim to being queer, because my general straightness was felt too intellectually vanilla beige or something. <laughs> I realize how ridiculous this is, seeing as I have hetero married a man in order to do so. <laughs> For tax purposes, Aiden and I are officially separated, but have made no plans to formally divorce at this point, even though our initial plan was divorce one, to divorce one year after the marriage. I weigh the conceptual options of either attempting to defy divorce rates or reinforce them. August of 2015, I par participated in an exchange exhibition between emerging artists in Vancouver and Winnipeg. The Winnipeg artists were presenting their preliminary research on us at school and had done some Googling on us. Apparently they found our marriage documentation and presented it to their class. I wonder if the class was interested or just think I'm a freak. Ironically, I have caught myself subconsciously assuming that I am closer with Aiden than him and his other friends just because we are legally married, that this somehow makes me a higher priority. This bothers me because it means that in my own way, I give emotional and psychological power to the institution of marriage, the very thing I'm trying to undertake. When I called my dad to tell him about my marriage, I didn't realize that I was calling just before dinner. My grandparents, aunts, uncles, and parents' friends were all in town and got the news at the same time. I quickly realized that this project was not destined to remain in the art world, where people are, are generally more accepting of this kind of thing. It was a project designed largely for family, co-workers, and acquaintances. <coughs> Often when I start telling a new person about my marriage, they assume it was for citizenship purposes, as though the marriage had to have had some kind of utilitarian purpose. Aiden's dad spontaneously gave me his old stereo amp as a gift one time when he was trying to get rid of old things. I remember him saying, I gotta take care of my daughter-in-law. <laughs> I guess it warmed up to the marriage. Yeah, but because you told me about it. Oh. <laughs> 
something on Facebook about our tourism is ridiculous. And and a sad a sad photograph of um, a bear basically because he's in Buenos Aires. And that's a yeah. Did you see this picture? Yeah. I saw the video maybe of him being super sad. Super sad. And his enclosure. Yeah. And this is like in Buenos Aires in Mendoza, where obviously the temperature is very warm. And so there was this like huge, well, obviously not that huge. <laughs> <laughs> huge outpouring. Huge outpouring. Like thousands of petitions were signed. Um, and yeah, to basically bring him. Um, to somewhere to the north, and uh, he's still alive because they, they decided that he was too old to move. Um, and basically, I just started, I like the kind of seeing that and thinking about it, um, just kind of got me thinking on this impulse to um, take action and kind of fix things, but also doing that from um, at a distance and kind of like how we are cons also constrained to take action. Um, and so it came out in this kind of um, anxious love letter to this polar bear. And we received this kind of enigmatic email earlier in the day that like the program of tonight was going to be all potentially uh, artistic. And so I thought I would take a cue from Marie Len and start at the end of the chat book. Some, you know, not linear. Not. I think I'll stand up so you can hear me back. So. We're beginning with the end in the afterward. Because we cannot spend our lives attached to our mothers, find our way to a bear. Bear is often our first companion. He trails or hangs limp in our arms like the newly dead part of ourselves. We subject him to all kinds of obscene torture, trial by biting, dragging, fur plucking, eye removal, at night, we make bears sit against the wall while we pontificate on the day's developments. We understand bear too needs to be briefed on the do's and don'ts of the civilized world. When we have been bad, we say, bad bear. We forget him when we are good. It is only in the moment we think others have no need for us, perhaps here we are at our best, that we reach and yearn for bear. Where's bear, we say then. Where is there? And this is a piece of Arturo. Arturo, writing and calling it a transformation notebook, scattering advice throughout. To have Selena's mug, cheeks, teeth, snout, to break free entirely. We will not learn of such things here. Someone always gets hurt jumping from here. Okay, this is a joke, and this is the most important part. A man, fashioning himself a bear, walks into a bar where ice is melting in every glass. He realizes the joke he is about to tell the tender is 100% ill-timed. Knock, knock. Who's there? Arturo. Arturo who? Arturo, the saddest polar bear in the world. <laughs> Can you guys hear me all the way? Are the rhythms of the wild forever lost, or did we invent them in the first place? Is it different at the opposite pole, or basically the same? Do animals themselves know 30 different words for snow? 
Begin by blindfolding the students. Give each student an object to hold and feel, ice, faux fur, a white sheet of paper. Get them to describe the objects without using the words, ice, faux fur, a white sheet of paper. Explain the thing about objects and helping ourselves. Arturo, not now. What polar ice cap thingy? I've created a simple summary for all those concerned with the bear to ensure we are up to the minute with the facts. Apparently that's two of us in this room. <laughs> the length of a polar bear's claw is 20 centimeters. The size of a polar bear is generally large. The color of a polar bear is most often white. The shape of a polar bear is special, but at the same time it resembles other bears. The purpose of a polar bear's fur is to keep it warm. The habitat of a polar bear is in the north. The ice in the north is melting. The ceiling is above us. Dear Arturo, here's what I'm thinking. You and I share a background which is white. Helper is a type of word. We're all looking for a third person on which to project. Now if someone could just get me a tabula rasa, we could proceed with this form requesting your freedom. Dearest Arturo, are we really so toxic our bodies are taking twice as long to decompose, preservatives, etc., but I don't want to bore you. A fictional ancestor has been found to be real, really, a relative. Arturo, don't. You're treading on thinning ice. I'll accept tears only as action. The fish are farmed out, certainly, but you knew that. From inside your pen, you've asked yourself what thinking looks like, dressed in black and curled up in the snow. Yeah, so? It's basically silly to write anything but a memoir at your age. Oh, you didn't know? Instead of help, always yell fire. Now stand next to the chalkboard and draw the letter P. Ask your students to picture a lock while placing their feet perpendicular to their desk legs. Get them to free write, imagining how they might not be free as an activity. I have to stretch this out because it's a chapbook because it's going to take four minutes to read. I realize I have half an hour. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Anybody need a drink? Can I grab a hat? <laughs> when doves are grumbling in the eaves, I believe scientists. Flowers on every table at the UN Climate Change Summit. I'm refusing red meat, I'm refusing tofu, I'm refusing Malbec. Fire, stop messing around. Is it happening? Maybe, baby, but don't say anything. Happy now? Okay, but less position, more pose. We want an investment in your futuro. Arturo, I hate to be the one to point it out, but this, in this version, you appear slightly on the nose, victim <laughs> The picture is really worse. <laughs> Arturo, 4.53 p.m. I'm sitting on the toilet watching it all live from a pervy action cam. Are you watered? Have you slept? I calculated from the last picture, stop bothering the bear, poorly. 229 active zoos in North America. Shit, that's displacement. I just swiped and you were updated from sad to depressed. 
Anyways, hashtag out of my hands, Arturo. You seem like a good person, basically honest and sincere, but aren't we all always in the process of extincting? Your line here would be, no, not you. You seem like a good person, basically honest and sincere. Like how every will contains a counter will. A black bear falls down in a moat in Chesky Krimlov. There's heightened activity on change.org. My mom arrives late and blames the cosmos. There is heightened activity on change.org. Oh, hey, my friend just sent me a text from the Yukon. I told her Arturo might also be willing to consider Alberta, where there are no tolls or taxes. She couldn't believe it. There's reception, like how there are also exceptions. Uh, so this is from the uh, Twitter feed, which is uh, conveniently on the back of the book if you want to follow Arturo's uh, journey. Hashtag Mendoza, hashtag Free Arturo, hashtag Argentina. At Free Arturo, we must continue the fight against all suffering. At Free Arturo, and all the, and all the animals suffering in that hell on earth, at Free Arturo, what must it be like living there? At Free Arturo, signed and shared. At Free Arturo, what and why and how? At Free Arturo, frowny face. Humans are terrible, humans are garbage. At Free Arturo, but we have signed so many petitions. At Free Arturo, heartbreaking, double frowny face. I'm just sick about this. At Free Arturo, Sigmund. At Free Arturo, what? Is he dead? Wait, hold on a sec, seriously, what? Is he lonely? Is he sick? Just lying there. Just lying there. Just lying there. Just lying there. Hello? What do you mean, my own device? No, there just must be something wrong with the connection. Okay, let's just stop trying to be clever here. Let's just stop trying for one moment to be clever. We are clever. Let's just stop trying to make this point. No, of course I'm not speaking for you. I mean, I don't want to speak for you. What if we got hairs out to narrate? You're kidding. Yes, there's a chance you'll be bigger posthumously. What? Who's looking at your profile? Who, really? Who really cares who's looking? Who's looking and who cares? Who really cares? I'll end it on a question. Arturo, an iceberg is like grief because A, you only see a portion, B, it breaks off quite unexpectedly. But listen, you don't have to feel it all at once. The righteous go on building huts, and that's a comfort. So if you, if you buy the chat book, you'll get special features, like <laughs> a picture of an iceberg stolen from the internet. <laughs> I think my spirit is asleep. 
And because of the visibility of breath in the cold, and generally speaking the cold, there appears to be a poem under this poem, and under that I say a prayer. May you dive off this ice flow to another and another, and float like a kidney in oil. 153 people like that, done and shared, donating my kidneys to an oil mogul. Oh my God, Arturo, I don't believe in free love, I don't believe in free verse, I don't believe in free anything, but I do believe art, you're the deepest thing we have, the polar field still rhythmically pulsing. There's three pluses there, and my friend was like, you should go, the polar field still rhythmically pulsing. <laughs> <laughs> Arturo, yo, yo sé. It is sad, porque no sabemos whether to laugh or cry. En la absencia total, humans make use of God, hell, and exclamation marks. What's your getaway? ¿Qué? ¿Le muerto? Así es. Because mierda, we are all stories because we are all mierda stories. Si, Arturo, espero que si. In another life, you could be the hero narrating. So here's what I'm thinking updated. A shared background only goes so far. A fish does not think dead fish when shaking the hand of another fish. A fish does not consider flip-flopping insincere. So, between us, there is a difference. Now, if we could just continue with the procedure of filling out this fucking form. Place of origin, ha ha ha. Arturo, that's different. Laughter can be lightly veiled anger. We need to recognize that. Affect is no reliable witness. I mean, weren't you sad to begin with? Tudo, of course you're still waiting, I'm, I'm late. Bears migrate and nap naturally, but humans require shipping and handling. I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry you can't ask me that. Oh, that. They held me up at customs. I reported sunscreen, a crowbar, the petition for your freedom, not being certain whether the baggage I was carrying was really mine. Oh, not cold. Someone tell me how the hell to get up. If all you need to do is badly want, saving you was, this is not nonsense, all about me. No, I'm not like everybody else. Um, I'm not. Love making with a little failure? Yes, okay. Adulthood is admission of deep guilt. It didn't come. I was sick at every opportunity. I really am sorry, Arturo, but someone is at the door. Maybe Miley Cyrus has come to sign the petition. Anyway, if we're getting close to the end, you should hear the sound a lock makes. Opening. You're right, it doesn't fully click in anyways. Heard by what, by whom? Like we're on the way to some unknown presence? Sure, well, yeah, 
They say females have a higher threshold for pain, but you know what that means, Arturo. And this is the last line, and this is from the best poet, Beyonce. Nobody frees you from your body. You break. Thanks, everyone.
chapter is called Immigrant Souvenir. The American culture of the disposable object was most unfamiliar to the immigrants from the East. It embodied their desires and fears, consumerist luxury on the one hand, and a sense of transience, a perpetual whirlpool of change that reminded them acutely of their exile on the other. So in their collections of souvenirs, many immigrants preserved a certain crypto-Soviet attitude toward the object, even when the object itself and the context is different. Several people confessed with good humor that during their first year in the United States, they never threw away paper cups and paper plates. They secretly saved them. Now, as they become Americanized, they no longer do that. This is hardly unique to immigrants from the former Soviet Union. One could observe similar American immigrant rituals in Chinese, Vietnamese, and Puerto Rican communities, for example. Their idea of privacy and intimacy retains the memory of their abandoned homeland, where privacy was forever endangered. Soviet domestic rituals originated in response and in opposition to the culture of fear, where the home search was a fact of daily life and any pursuit of domesticity precarious and vulnerable. Moreover, for this group of middle and low strata of urban intelligentsia, the private or intimate was often understood as a space of escape that was not limited to an individual or a nuclear family, but more often to a group of close friends. The social frameworks of memory formed in this case in the Soviet urban context have merged with individual practices of inhabiting a home. They now provide a minimal continuity of self during the immigrant's period of displacement and resettlement. Immigrant households share traces and frameworks of Soviet urban memory of the 1970s, yet their story, the way of making sense of their environment, is radically different. I don't think of returning back to Russia, only of visiting, says Larissa. This is my home now. There are many nostalgic objects on immigrant bookshelves, and still the narrative as a whole is not that of nostalgia. Diasporic souvenirs do not reconstruct the narrative of, narrative of one's roots, but rather tell the story of exile. They are not symbols, but transitional objects that reflect multiple belonging. And the former country of origin turns into an exotic place represented through its arts and crafts, usually admired by foreign tourists. Newly collected memories of exile and acculturation shift the old cultural frameworks. Even Russian or Soviet souvenirs can no longer be interpreted within their native context. Now they are a cipher for exile itself and for a newfound uh, exilic domesticity. If Kabakov's installations reveal the desire to inhabit in the most trivial everyday manner the sacred spaces of the artistic establishment, immigrants' homes betray an obsession with making everyday existence beautiful and memorable. Their rooms filled with diasporic souvenirs are not altars to their unhappiness, but rather places for communication and conversation. They do not manage to live in the eternal present of the American myth, but neither can they afford to dwell in the past. Diasporic intimacy is possible only when one masters a certain imperfect aesthetics of survival and learns to inhibit, inhabit exile. The, in, the immigrants cherish their oases of intimacy away from the homeland and not quite in the promised land. They have accents in both languages, foreign and native. Uh, 
this is a working title uh, that I wrote called Make, Make, America, America, Great, Great, Again, Again. <laughs> Thoughts on nostalgia? If you survey the comment section of any 60s or 70s songs from a well-known video streaming website, it will not be too long before you find the top comments in the automated thread where each like from a comment brings them above for visibility is seemingly brimming with they don't make music like they used to level of, at times, a thinly veiled and misplaced nostalgia. This rhetoric naturally spawns an equally misplaced criticism for contemporary music proclaiming of its mediocrity based on the idea that youth of today have no idea what they are talking about. This becomes a self-loathing exchange amongst some of the vocal user base in the community, going so far as to claim that they were born in the wrong generation. <laughs> this level of nostalgia is pronounced, to say the least, in a place such as the comment section, where comment visibility triumphs genuine opinion. If one can find the right formula to sway the majority in order to be heard, that noise becomes amplified to a point that it holds a dedicated allegiance to the established opinion of those that were once in power and have a very keen interest in maintaining said power. This buying power of who has the loudest voice has been quantified through a series of likes that one must accrue with black and white arguments of musical superiority and inferiority in the modern era. This leads to a series of repetitive spamming, hammering down the essentials required for a maximum amount of likes per minute, per hour, hopefully to become the common divide of the people. Based on this observation, I have come to the conclusion that many online users don't belong in this timeline, stuck learning to cope with the bleak modernity by leaving subtle clues as to why they are so attached to cultural artifacts that have far been removed from their own context. Some possibilities are A, they genuinely enjoy the music and nothing more. B, they want comment visibility by accruing likes and as a result gain audience. C, they are not in love with the music, they are in love with the exotic associated with the nostalgia that comes with the music. Nostalgia is the ambiguous space left empty waiting for the right moment to occupy itself, a coping mechanism that wields no content. But whatever steps into its space becomes intrinsically bittersweet and sentimental because it is no longer within reach through our physical grasp. This myth-making reinforces a sense of identity. Nostalgia masks modernity and regresses back to a different timeline when everything was perceivably all right with the world. This perception of all right is only within the basis of remembering. It does not reflect the subject of memory itself. Now one must ask, why did you remember that all of a sudden? Are you sure you're not just remembering the last time you remembered the subject at hand? <laughs> if nostalgia is not the basis of accurate historical narrative, but rather a catalyst to trigger endorphins in the name of pleasure, reassurance, or coping, then it opens up opportunities to modify what has already been experienced through a revisionist thought process. Nostalgia is the remnant of history that is worth extracting. There are pivotal moments where one can revise its context to evoke something new on the basis of its historical footprint it once welded. It waits to spring out when memory is triggered at an appropriate and relevant time when we seek emotional caress in reaffirming our identity. Nostalgia is non-existent. 
we modify our previous experiences and recycle them into something more useful that serve as coping mechanisms ready to be used at a moment's notice. Based on our past memories, it, only, uh, it seems only natural to salvage reusable memories and convert them into endorphins. It no longer applies whether these historically it, it no longer applies whether these are historically reliable or not. It is strictly for the purpose of coping and thus represents the first stages of forgetting through the process of revision. Excerpt from November 2018. There is a gathering, probably dinner or maybe even cheese and crackers. It's hard to tell because half the people here brought barbecue flavored potato chips, including myself. <laughs> For a split second, I am at my fifth grade pizza party and the host just so happens to be celebrating their birthday. It's pouring rain outside and I just got here half hour ago. I'm still a bit wet because my umbrella is falling apart. Editor's note, it was $4, so who cares? <laughs> there is faint music in the background a friend of mine is on that detail and seems to fit the mood. Lighting is a bit too bright, so it cracks the atmosphere just a tad. Doesn't anybody notice this? Should I just go dim it? This thought is interrupted by someone walking in. It is evident that it's their birthday. Based on a series of gatherings that I've frequented, I come to the conclusion that today is not actually their birthday, but either yesterday or tomorrow, or even a week before. I later find out that I am wrong. Today is their birthday. <laughs> Everyone is now streaming and giving a hug to birthday boy 9000. <laughs> I am happy because this diversion clears most of the chairs and I grab a comfortable looking one of the bunch. In the corner of my eye, I catch a glimpse of a person rushing for the bottle of wine to pour them a glass. There is no more wine glass. Said person begrudgingly reaches for a coffee mug instead. It's a warm ocean green cyan color. It's a nice mug, and I briefly consider stealing this mug. <laughs> Nothing comes to fruition, but the thought resonates throughout the night. I'm drinking wine, but I don't really like wine. I was poured one by my friend hosting the gathering when I came in, and it seemed rude to change your offer. I can't actually distinguish from good to bad wine. Didn't I read somewhere that it's all pseudoscience anyway? Maybe I shouldn't bring this up. <laughs> Birthday Boy 9000 is going full throttle with his wine knowledge to an audience <laughs> I can't tell if my decision to bite my lip was based on diplomacy or I'm simply not drunk enough. In retrospect, I probably just wished I knew what good wine tastes like. I notice someone cracking a genuine smile at someone or something. I come to the conclusion that they've been drinking wine all night. Their teeth is noticeably red. That was the moment when I remembered the Costco incident and chuckled to myself. A person I don't know catches me in the act and emanates what I can describe only as a perplexed intrigue. I like this crowd. There is no visible sexual tension. <laughs> Nobody is awkwardly trying to flirt, but instead projecting anecdotes of mild vulgarity. 
I overhear someone talking about a conspiracy in the restaurant industry where they use chicken anuses for calamari instead of squid. <laughs> I can immediately guess who's a fan of calamari. <laughs> they are not smiling. Two more people show up. They are a couple. They just got off work and one of them is holding a bottle of scotch. They look tired, and based on the change of air, I get a slightly, slight feeling that they were arguing moments before walking in. One of them makes a double-sided comment about a hat my friend is wearing. She looks slightly faced, but recovers immediately. I laugh because it's true. The air is slightly less tense in the room. I suddenly start to wonder how I would escape if there was a fire right now. We are definitely not on the first floor, so this will be kind of difficult. This looks to be an old building, and I don't see any sprinklers. I look for the heaviest looking chair in the living room, with the thought maybe, just maybe, I will throw it into the window and climb down to safety. I also consider how I would politely, yet firmly, ask the person sitting on the chair to get off so I can throw it into the window. <laughs> <laughs> then it strikes me that I saw a fire extinguisher out in the hallway when I came in. I put on my shoes to, to check to see where it is. Three people stop me one after the other and wonder if I'm leaving. I tell them no, no, and yes. <laughs> fire extinguisher is about 20 feet away across from the stairs. I check the date of installation and expiration, and it reads September 10th, 2016. I walk back to the party with my crumpled, half-worn shoes. I no longer have fire in my mind, not because I was reassured seeing the fire extinguisher, but I have now become bored of this train of thought. Thank you. I saw that today. This is 
And so that prevents me. So for instance, um, so tonight, um, last week, I saw uh, Monique sent me a video, or is it Casey? They had a performance at, um, at uh, the Astoria. And I can see the video is really good. Uh, I think Casey was like, uh, playing guitar, and then, and then Monique came, and then she, Monique was, her work is all about love and relationship, and also looking beautiful in the body, and then, you know, all these like, tensions. And then she started to, to perform her poem, and also like, started to paint the face of Casey, and her face too, like, was very messy. And then she was kind of talking about contour. And I saw, I mean, everybody knows that, me, I didn't know that until like, a, I don't know, not like six months ago. There's so, like, if, if I want to go and apply, how to apply makeup. And then there's like a million um, websites, I mean, YouTube tutorial about makeup, and I found it called contour. And then they, they you know, like, so they put the white here, and they put dark here. And it's just to make sure, like, the, where the Kardashian look or something, like, so, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So I thought, oh my god, this is hilarious. And then she was going, like, with the whole thing and making a mess and everything. So I saw her on, on Thursday and I said, um, that, I'm so glad you did that because I always thought in those tutorials, because before they start, like, no, I didn't blend. But then after they do that, then men, maybe they don't know, they blend and it makes, like, a beautiful look and luminous and sexy and really hot. <laughs> but then I disagree because I told I told that we're having shoot kind of the projection room on Thursday, like where yeah. That was on my side. And then I was telling her, I'm so glad you did that because every time I saw I see those tutorials, I'm thinking, don't blend. It's so good. Like I, I always had this I always had this kind of fantasy, it's like a desire, like to paint like I found it so boring that I mean or surprising that we we don't go with blue, blue and red, like, you know, we go and makeup and we go out and... I'm surprised that we, we don't play more with color on our face and make lines. And then, well, we can understand, like, some people have good reasons or bad reasons or whatever, but then, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, you know where I'm going, like, in, in this, this kind of territory. So, uh, a friend of mine, is it Aaron Carpenter, said, Oh yeah, he was he was really bugging me about content, and I said, Oh yeah, right, I'm not, I'm not about content. Thank you very much. He said, No, no, you're plenty of content, and he said the word contentious, <laughs> and then I didn't know the meaning of the word ESL, so I looked at him, and he was really accurate, and also the way he did it in the messages, like, contentious. I thought about it this week and I, you know, like it's not about like provocation or attracting uh, just to get attention on my writing, on my work, it's because I'm truly, like it's almost like a Larry David thing, it's like, ooh, this is like, this is, doesn't add up, we cannot walk there because of this, but then, you know, like this kind of, I have that gene, I have that gene that I, I like to go when it's not comfortable and also when uh, symbols are, um, People plant flags and symbols, and then so uh, that's what I want to say. And then uh, maybe to uh, oh yeah, and then uh, tonight, like the, to top it up the contentious. The thing is, I, I asked, I felt bad like to do this if um, if Monique was doing that, but I said okay. 
I give you two choices. Or you collaborate on this, because I want this. I've always wanted that. And then it's a bit different than your work. And it's like you didn't plant a flag on contour. I mean, like, you know, it's like I did. And then so I said, you're messing it up. You're messing with it. And it's so I mean, I have a cream. Like, so it's high fashion. So like, that didn't go well. I don't like that didn't go well at all. So that's, uh, that's interesting, I think, to to again like this idea of um, planting a flag on an idea and then like uh, uh, preventing reinterpretation and I think we, we need to relax about that. I think maybe when I was younger I was a little bit more um, attached, like more defensive and somebody uh, you know was close to my work. But I now I found in this community and it's Jordan actually who really changed my perception about that is that there's no scene without us influencing each other. And then I found that the, the community we have here in Vancouver, the artists and writer, is, is something also that Chris Cross said that, um, that Stephen told me a long time ago. And it makes sense. It's like you don't, you know, like you share ideas. I didn't used to think that. But now I understand more in a destiny way. And uh, so, yeah, that's it. Oh no, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's uh, okay. So yeah. then I want. Okay, so I had my friend. Um, my friend. Uh, I had a friend, a real cowboy, a real country singer, who was supposed to sing tonight, and something happened. It's not gonna happen. So I, I reverted to uh, another of my favorite cowboy, and his name is uh, Mitch Sharon, and uh, he wrote, uh, I think, the best cowboy song ever, and I think I listened to it at least 100 times in the last two years, and I cannot get tired of it, also I, it's not going to age, and the last thing I'm going to say about it, because he also told me, whatever you do, don't say too much, <laughs> so I say, well, in my line of work, like, saying too much is, that's what I do, I say too much, <laughs> I specialize, <laughs> okay, so I noticed that when I was playing uh, the record from Kevin, that is uh, the compilation that he was nominated for a Grammy Awards, <laughs> Um, last week, so it's a compilation of North, North American, uh, native North American music. And it's volume one. It was nominated last week for the Grammys. And I, I write because, again, like attention is that it's all uh, native and it's, like a, and it's four volumes. I mean, four. And then I always thought it was strange, like when I said like a native First Nation person would be dressed like a cowboy. Like it's something like, a, oh, but you cannot talk about that, but then I want to talk about that, you know? So I, with Kevin, he told me, yeah, like this is, it's amazing all the interviews that we, I found also, like it's like the First Nations and then um, what I played on track was um, uh, First Nations uh, country music. So this is my favorite cover song. And then I suggest you close your eyes, it's very neuromantic. And the last thing I'm going to say is because I noticed the sound is pretty bad for somebody who's sensitive to sound for those, but Mitch invented also on top of it uh, the idea of bad sound as really good sound. So when, you know, when I first heard it, it was like, a, oh, this bad recording, and then I was like, oh, no, no, this is really amazing. It makes a texture that is hard to forget. Oh, no, I have to find it. <laughs> it's called. It's called um, oration of the dignity of dance. Yeah, it's not very long.
Mais c'est bien. Oui.